Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Minds on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And today I'm once again speaking with Becca Boswell, who's a supervising psychologist at the Princeton Center for Eating Disorders. On this episode, we talk about weight bias and its effect on mental health, as well as the history of BMI. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast and find it helpful. You know, it's funny that we are having this conversation today because I actually was just, this morning, I came across this news article and actually I've been seeing a lot about this. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, have you heard of that movie, The Whale, that's coming out? Oh my gosh. I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I have heard, <laughs> I have heard about this. Um, yeah, a lot. I've been getting messages from people about you know, how amazing Brendan Fraser's performance was mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. how psyched they are about it, but also having, you know, some reservations about how people with larger bodies are depicted in media. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me just say, as a Brendan Fraser fan, I'm I'm super happy that he's having his, his comeback moment, you know? Um, oh my gosh, me too. He's amazing. <laughs> I'm so glad that he's back in at it. Right. But especially after the conversation we just had about, you know, how all consuming the eating disorder mindset can kind of be and anything related to food or weight. I I just, I guess I just had the thought, like, I wonder how seeing all these headlines are affecting people that are struggling with this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good question. Um, You know, I haven't seen the movie yet, right? Because it's still at film festival time, but imagine that all the press around it is, you know, bringing attention to people about the idea of, you know, very large bodies and the language that people use in news articles and in headlines around Mm -hmm. weight and bodies can always be, you know, kind of uncomfortable for people of all sizes. My understanding too, is that this character, um, one of the character attributes is that the character suffers from binge eating disorder. Oh, I didn't, um, know, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I heard that in one of the articles. I don't know if that's actually right, but mm-hmm. it's um, you know, certainly one of very few representations of binge eating disorder in the media, and you know, pretty complicated um, because it's one of the only ways that people understand you know eating disorders in people with larger bodies, um, mm-hmm. and it's really not a clear picture of that in like a, a news headline about a movie that no one's seen yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I guess I'm wondering if maybe we can talk a little bit about weight bias and sort of what that is. So can you maybe just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think um, weight bias is a way that we understand like societal and cultural, but also interpersonal attitudes towards people in larger bodies so weight bias holds uh, some beliefs about what being in a larger body means about a person. Um, so there are cultural stereotypes around being in a larger body, like around people's relationships with food, people's sort of personal um, self-control abilities or perseverance or conscientiousness, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of part of that bias and, you know, it's something that I think is represented in a lot of different parts of society, right? So it's, you know, certainly something that's prevalent in the media. So Mm -hmm. there are so few visual representations of people in larger bodies who are not 
just the larger bodied character, right? There are very mm-hmm. few leading actors or leading actresses that get to be complex characters while they're also in a larger body and, and it, very few. Di- Go ahead. Sorry for interrupting. I guess I was just thinking based on the example we were just talking about, again, never having seen this movie before, it seems like, and I, I could be completely wrong about this, but all I've ever heard about the character that Brendan Fraser plays in this movie is that he's 400 pounds or whatever it is and not anything else about like who the character is. So I guess it, it, it just kind of highlights to me how one dimensional these characters in these films and TV shows and stuff really are. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some interesting parts of Brendan Fraser's interviews where he's talking about like the experience of wearing a fat suit that I imagine is just a really hard thing for people of all sizes to hear Mm -hmm. about like how physically taxing it is to do that work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from a representation standpoint, the idea of someone, you know, having to wear prosthetic, like body enhancing Mm -hmm. um, like materials in order to inhabit a character, you know, some of the, you know, more activist type people would compare that to something like a white actor playing a person of color. That's exactly right? that the it's like I not, Yeah. Absolutely. That mm. it's, you know, not representation from someone who's actually had that lived experience. So really problematic in that way to, you know, assume that by having a movie experience of living in a larger body that you, you know, really understand what it's like to have lived in a larger body for your whole life and all of the you know, bias and discrimination that comes with that and all the ways that people come to inhabit larger bodies. Um, So a lot of assumptions that are not well represented by, you know, a single actor in a single movie. Totally. Yeah. And I've, I've really like heard a lot of sadness from people uh, about that, right. That Mm -hmm. this is one of the, you know, hot headlines about representation of people in larger bodies in movies, but it's not something that people with lived experience are playing a role in. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's, and it's like not a full picture of what life is like um, mm. for a lot of people. I do think about a good comparison in media. I don't know if you saw um, A.D. Bryant and Shrill. I, I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a really <laughs> good TV series. So A.D. Okay. Bryant, she was on SNL and she's, you know, a woman in a larger body mm. and was part of this series, um, a comedy series where she played a young woman who was in a larger body. It was uh, based on a book by Lindy West and really just, you know, showed across several you know, seasons the development of a character of a young woman in a larger body. Oh, nice. Um, that, you know, talked about what it was like to face experiences of bias in the workplace and in romantic relationships mm-hmm. and in friendships and just was a bit richer, but, you know, still had its limitations too and how it depicted life. Sure. And I think we can probably think of plenty of examples of weight bias in the media, but I guess I'm just wondering, like, are there other settings where you sort of see weight bias take place, but maybe in a different way? Absolutely. I mean, I think it cuts across areas of life. So there's unfortunately a lot of weight bias in healthcare. Mm. Um, most patients might describe an experience of, you know, going to a doctor for like a broken ankle or like a, a painful experience and being told that if they only lost weight, things would be so much better. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of physicians don't have a lot of experience in 
and training around how to talk with people of all sizes about health. Sometimes doctors get trained in thinking about the numbers, right? And weight and BMI as health indicators rather than thinking about the context around that number and what Mm -hmm. it might mean for an individual. I mean, there's also lots of experiences I've heard from people and, you know, seen in the media as well about weight bias in employment settings or in interpersonal relationships that uh, people in large bodies are often still passed over for things like promotions or Mm -hmm. face a lot of interpersonal violence in dating contexts because of societal and individual attitudes towards people in larger bodies. And if we accumulate all those experiences, right, in media and healthcare and employment settings and relationships for an individual, there might also be internalized negative attitudes about bodies that can develop over time, being in a world that is so negative towards people of different sizes. So I want to talk about what those are more specifically, but we're, we're talking about weight bias right now solely in terms of you know people who are in larger bodies, but can weight bias also exist for people sort of on the other end of the spectrum? Uh, I mean, I think there are stereotyped attitudes around like bodies of larger size and bodies of smaller size as well but Mm -hmm. you know systematically people in smaller bodies don't face the same kind of discrimination and interpersonal violence that people in larger bodies do and so there's often like a idealization of a very thin even like an unhealthily thin body in fashion and media so you know it's it's different for people that live in larger bodies okay gotcha what are some of the incorrect underlying assumptions of weight bias beliefs? It's a good question. Well, you know, I think that there's really a belief that I see in healthcare a lot. um, And that I think is on the tip of the tongue of people that think about weight bias in the community, um, that people in larger bodies are unhealthy, Mm -hmm. right? That it's, it's not healthy to live in a larger body. And that sometimes means that that healthfulness halo kind of like gives people the feeling of an invitation to comment on how people eat or how people look um, because it's under the guise of offering like healthful advice. Can you say Um, that one more time? Did you say healthfulness halo? Yeah. A healthy, a healthful halo. (laughs) So so, um, Um, tell me, tell me more about what that means. Yeah. So it's actually, um, a research term, honestly, oh, <laughs> the oh, idea okay. of a health halo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like if you talk about something um, from the value of healthiness, then it sort of makes you like the angelic figure offering healthful advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of a health halo is sometimes applied to things like food marketing, where they like put low fat or like organic on something. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. And then sell it for $5 more and right, you right. think that it's going to be healthier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this organic apple can... juice is uh, way better for you than the, than the $5 cheaper version of apple juice. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that halo phenomenon also applies to interpersonal relationships that if someone is offering someone else health advice, it can feel like, oh, I'm doing a nice thing for this person. But mm-hmm. really, it's fully missing the interpersonal and social context of that conversation and gotcha. it can be quite aggressive. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's incorrect about that idea that people in larger bodies are unhealthy is that you know things like BMI and weight were never meant to be health indicators, right? They're 
more just a ratio of how, how, how tall you are and what your body mass is. Mm-hmm. Um, but not anything that tells you about how your heart is functioning or what your muscle density is, right. Or your, how much muscle mass you have or how your lab work looks, right. It's not a yeah. one-to-one indicator and never was meant to be. In other words, people who have a quote unquote high BMI, they might have super healthy hearts. They might have um, no issues with cholesterol or blood pressure or cancer or diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. But it can sort of a high BMI can in and of itself can be looked at as a negative health indicator, even though that might not necessarily signal that there's really anything wrong. Right. BMI was never meant to be an individual health indicator. It Mm -hmm. was more of a population measure of like the distribution of how bodies are across all people. Gotcha. Um, Mm -hmm. So if I can, you know, get on my like history nerd soapbox for a second. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, BMI was actually um, created by a statistician. Um, His name was Adolf Quetlet. He was a, a Belgian math nerd. Um, who was curious about how bodies were in the population. And by the population, it was, you know, really white men in Germany and Belgium Mm -hmm. um, uh, in the 1800s, right? Just as a mathematical exercise to see what the normal curve looked like across the population. Um, And so he created like a height and weight index that... um, he called the Quetlet Index because he, you know, was an academic statistician. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, this was a time period of, like, scientific racism and eugenics. And so oh. that uh, height and weight ratio, sort of normal curve in a white male population was used as an indicator of, like, racial supremacy um, in the UK shortly after. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. So really, um, you know, not an early start to positive feelings around BMI. Yeah. Yeah, but so it was made by a math nerd, never meant to indicate anything about individual health, wasn't even connected to health at all, mm-hmm. just like the the average size. And the first time BMI was connected to health was really in like the 40s and 50s in the U.S. by insurance providers looking at their, you know, their people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And looking at the data in their population and saying, you know, what are some indicators that we can use to shift insurance rates for people? Right. Again, in like a group of men predominantly who were at the time, you know, smoking a lot mm-hmm. and exercise, like very exercising, very little sort of living in that 1950s lifestyle. Yeah. But there was no real like scientific research into how much is this BMI thing related to health. Interesting. And it wasn't until like the 80s and 90s that that started to be connected more and more in popular discourse. And then, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, there were lots of shifts in how we were talking about obesity Mm -hmm. and BMI as like a pandemic, like a horrifying thing that was coming for everyone. Right. And there's, you know, some thought from, you know, people that have been looking into that time period and discourse around bodies and weight that really a lot of that seems to have been driven by pharmaceutical industries Mm -hmm. that were interested in prescribing medicine for um, reducing body size, uh, but needed for obesity to be medicalized to do that. 
who would have guessed that the villains to the story would have been insurance companies and pharma- the pharmaceutical industry? It just blows my mind. Who would have guessed? <laughs> I know. What a shocker. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, maybe we can rename this episode The History of BMI because that actually is really interesting. Okay, so what you're saying is it wasn't even developed to do sort of what we're using it for now. No, it was never developed to be an individual health indicator, right? Mm-hmm. The best individual health ed- indicators are in individuals like lab work, right? So like what is an individual's body looking like at a given point in time? Mm-hmm. And BMI is just a, a crude indicator of your body density compared to your height. It fully misses out on muscle mass, right? Fully right. misses out on lots of variation in bodies. Um, mm-hmm. So really misses the mark for most people. You learn something new every day. I, I didn't know any of that. <laughs>